And please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to chapter 37 of Genesis. Genesis 37. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him in this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to these Ishmaelites and let us let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the rope in blood. 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask you to now open it to our eyes and our hearts. Help us to hear what your word says. Help us to apply what your word means to our lives. Spirit, we need your power at work among us now, and so we pray that you would work in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, when when bad things happen in our lives, when life goes off the rails, we typically respond with questions, with fear, or with anger, or any combination of the above. Among other things, it's not the only way we respond, but those are common responses when life goes off the rails. Anger may be the most common response, if we're honest, and we see anger emerge in our lives in, in two primary ways. Now, normally when we think of anger, we think of rage. We think of outbursts, and that is typically how anger comes out. But anger can also come out in the form of depression. Anger can be inwardly directed. We might be wired that way in our personality, or we might uh, uh, not find it appropriate to, to have outbursts of anger. If you're a child growing up in a home, like I was, it wasn't appropriate to have those, and so it's easy to turn anger inwardly. Depression is not, that's not the only way or not the only reason depression can emerge in our lives. Depression can come for many reasons, but one of the area, one of the ways that it happens from anger is something that we don't often think about. We don't often uh, consider it to be a source of our depression. Let me explain it a little bit further. We've said this a number of times, anger occurs in our hearts when either we get something that we don't want or we don't get something that we do want. Now, that's helpful in understanding why anger happens. James helps us. He says it a little bit differently. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Right? You can't blame God for your sin. That's what he's unpacking. Sin's your responsibility. And he's saying that we're lured and enticed by what? Our desire. Something we want that we didn't get, or something that we got that we didn't want. Then desire, James writes, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Think of some scenarios where this might come out. Someone pulls out in front of us. You know, I'm always going to use a driving example, right? You know, one of my great weaknesses uh, in my own heart. Somebody pulls out in front of us something we don't want. And we either respond outwardly, you know, what a cotton-headed ninny muggins or whatever our word of choice is there. Or inwardly, of course, this always happens to me, right? We come home, we thought dinner would have been taken care of by our spouse, and we respond outwardly, what have you been doing? Or inwardly, he or she never considers my needs, my situation, what I'm going through. We go on vacation, we get to the hotel, it's overbooked. 
So we respond either outwardly, how could you run your business this way? Or inwardly, Murphy's Law. This always happens to me. I plan, prepared, look forward to this, and this is exactly what happens. Whenever we get something we don't want or we don't get something that we do want, anger is often that, that result. And it's important to understand it's not just an outburst. It can also be directed inwardly at ourselves. Another result beyond anger is fear when life doesn't go as we expect. Sometimes that's how we respond. We respond in fear. All the what-if questions start to plow through our heads and we think of everything that could go wrong. In fact, I think our hearts are able to sometimes take the most minor inconveniences and develop a full-on catastrophe in our heads if we leave our imaginations unchecked. Ever happened? Happen? You know, you, you're, you're thinking through things. Maybe you, uh, you know, imagine a scenario. You've been out of work. You've finally gotten the job interview. You've prayed for. The morning comes, and everything seems to go wrong. You know, the iron blows the fuse. The the milk is soured. You know, the car makes a funny sound when it goes to start. And then, as you're driving late as you are to get to the interview, as you approach the railroad tracks, ding, 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 ding. The bar comes right down in front of you. And as you sit there, you begin imagining. I'm going to be late. I'm not going to get the job. He's not even going to talk to me. I'm not even going to get the interview. There, you know, the, the house is going to go into foreclosure. We're going to be on the streets and then to be awoken by ding, 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 ding as the bar comes back up. Our imaginations can, can feed these kind of fears in, in, about things that have never happened and may never happen. And yet in our heads, we can kind of feed it and nur- nurture it in this intoxicating Way I think both fear and anger can be at times for us intoxicating if we're not careful. So fear and anger are both responses. Maybe the most benign response is that we just scratch our head and ask questions. You know, what's going on? God, what are you up to? How will you ever turn anything good from this that I'm facing? We continue to struggle inwardly and the questions seem to mount. Those are things that we... There are ways that we respond when life goes off the rails. And so as we come to the story of Joseph, uh, we can understand why questions might pop up. Now, the challenge for most of you is that you're familiar with the story of Joseph, so you know where it ends. But discipline your mind just a little bit and think through this, that if you didn't know the end, even though I'm going to tell you the end in just a minute, we're going to jump ahead, even if you didn't know the end, what is all this about? You know, why is all of this happening? Why is this difficulty, this strife, this experience that Joseph is going through? What is God up to? I mean, this is not the way that you or I would write redemptive history if we had a pen and paper and we were going to imagine it. Truth is stranger than fiction. Because in this story, we see so much strangeness in terms of how the story is written. If you notice, God is not even mentioned in this chapter. We've seen this happen before in chapters of Genesis where God is not mentioned. And you may be inclined to think that because he's not mentioned specifically that he's far off, he's uninvolved, he is absent from this part of history. But that couldn't be further from the truth. And like I said, we'll skip forward for just one verse, even though most of us know this, how the story ends, to see what was happening all along. If we go to the end in in Genesis 50, verse 20, and we read how Joseph responds to his brothers, 
we see what God was up to all along. He said to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the story of Joseph. It's the story of a God who takes a mess and redeems it. He is a redeeming God. It's the same truth that we read in Romans 8.28 today and that we hold on to so dearly, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. That same truth is echoed in Colossians 1.17, that in Jesus all things are held together. All things. Everything. Every little thing. He is sovereignly ruling over all things and working them together for good. I often joke about what does all in the original language mean? All. It means everything. You know, it's, it's everything. R.C. Sproul said there's not one maverick molecule. God is ruling over everything. This means the messes, the fractures, the junk, the catastrophes, big and small, Our God is at work in them and through them. He makes beauty from ashes. He anoints our mourning with the oil of gladness. And He gives our heavy laden spirits a garment of praise. He's at work. Even when He's not mentioned in a chapter in the Bible, even when He appears far off in our lives or seems at times silent in our suffering, God holds all things together. He works all things together. And He even takes that which is intended for evil and works it all for good. And so as we come to the story of Joseph, let's remind ourselves that the story in, this story, as any story in Scripture, is not about a biblical hero. It is about the person's God, the true hero. If we only bring our Sunday school mindset, like when we were kids and we looked up to everybody as heroes, we might be tempted to do that again. But the stories of Scripture are not about the people, but about their God. He is the true hero of the story, as we'll see. In fact, what we see in Joseph is not a perfect man at all. He's fraught with deficiencies. In other words, he's just like us, just like you and just like me. Not a perfect person at all. Now, we can identify with some of the things that we see as Joseph's life emerges, but one thing that some of you probably can identify with, but not all of us, is the fact that he was spoiled a bit by Jacob. He was the favored child. Now, the youngest in the family is often said to be the favored. I was the youngest in my family, but we all know it was my sister. She was, she's still the baby of the family. But if you've been that favored person, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you're spoiled, but it can. And we see that spoiling and the effects of that spoiling come out in Joseph's life as this story goes on. He was Jacob's favorite primarily, I think, because he was Rachel's son. Jacob truly loved Rachel. She had his heart. But verse 3 also mentions that he was the son of his old age, that Jacob treasured Joseph in a special way because he was born to him in old age. And so we see the treatment of Joseph as different from his brothers, which begins to set this stage then for this discord that's going to emerge. We see first mention in verse 2 that Joseph had he brought a bad report. And the details aren't really provided, and, and you know you might read that and think that he brought a bad report, meaning he tattled on his brothers. Maybe that was Joseph's character. He was a, a bit of a baby, and so he was a tattletale. 
some argue from the way the grammar is structured that he actually was reporting on something in, in more of a noble sense, that he was telling his dad things that his brothers were doing that, that were wrong. But, you know, even, it, it doesn't matter, even if Joseph was doing, uh, if he was being a tattletale or if he was doing the noble thing, the brothers still have the same reaction, right? You told on us, you ratted us out. And so here's this other layer that begins to be laid for the dysfunction that we're going to see. Because Jacob loved him more, we see that he gives him this special coat. And this only causes more turmoil among the brothers. The report, the special coat, the clear preference for Joseph, all of these cause this rift that continues to grow among them. And then verse 4 says, that because of the special love that Jacob had for Joseph, his brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably, peacefully to him. Does that sound like uh, <laughs> parents has ever happened? Uh, you know, there's, there's times where there's strife. But you get a sense that this is strife at a whole nother level among siblings, right? They can't even speak peacefully to him. They can't treat him in any way decent. And so that parental favoritism that we saw with Isaac and Rebekah toward Jacob and Esau, we see it now repeating itself in the next generation. Sins don't have to be generational, but they often are. And here we see that happening. And so that's the background of the story of Joseph's, uh, the hatred of his brothers against Joseph. And then the next layer is these dreams in verses 5 to 11. They only add tension to this strife-filled family and how they come out. Joseph has a series of dreams, and the gist of which is that not only his brothers, but even his parents would bow down to him. You can imagine, those of you who have either had siblings or raised siblings or both, you, you can imagine how this would go over among siblings, that, that, that Joseph wanted to purport that the, the brothers would bow down to him. And so we see in verses 5 and then repeated again in verse 8, they hated him even more. And so as we look at themes in the chapter and so forth, one of the ways that we recognize themes in any, any section of Scripture is by repetition. And this is particularly true here in this case in Genesis. The word hate is repeated three times, and it's in this increasing intensity. This is one of the things the author wants us to understand that is happening in this family. The word brother for, for brothers is repeated 21 times. And so the picture that's being painted is this image of familial discord. And Jacob then responds to Joseph's dream with a rebuke. But the author adds this one phrase at the end of verse 11, that he kept this saying in mind. In other words, Jacob was going to remember these dreams. And he was going to realize one day that as immature and as, as uh, uh, boyish as Joseph may have been in his delivery and sharing of the dreams, that God was indeed at work. It's worth mentioning one other thing about the dreams before we move on, and that is in the opening words of the book of Hebrews, the author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. You see, even though God is not mentioned specifically in this chapter, it becomes very clear as the story goes on that God was the source of these dreams in Joseph's life. That he was speaking not only to Joseph, but to Jacob and to his brothers who would become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
that God is at work, just as he had already made clear to Abraham in Genesis 15 that one day this family that would come from him would be under a foreign power for 400 years and be servants for 400 years. Abraham didn't get any more details that we know of than that. And even if that story had been passed on, the participants at this at this stage of the game, they don't realize that this is what's beginning to unfold. The groundwork's being laid. The stage is being set for that to take place right here and now. God is clearly at work. Even though he's not mentioned, he is clearly at work. Let me add also, lest we wish that we had dreams that were revelatory or appearances from God, as sometimes we do, let's remember what the writer of Hebrews went on to say. That is that we have something much better than revelatory dreams or visions. That God has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus that we have all the revelation that we need for life and godliness in the Word, the Scriptures, which reveal to us the Word made flesh. So let's thank God for His Word to us that we have today. The second part of the story that begins in verse 12 is this story of really Joseph's life just coming off the rails. I mean, it goes from, uh, think of how protected and and uh, and cared for he was as the favorite getting gifts uh, from his father. And now all of a sudden, his father sends him out to check on his brothers and everything falls apart. He's nearly killed by them. He ends up as a slave in Egypt. Joseph may have thought that he suffered because he was picked on by his brothers or because they hated him so much. But Joseph was about to learn something very important, that suffering plays a role that he could never imagine. And this was important for a reason, that Joseph might be equipped to serve God and to serve God's people. So you see, the young Joseph, who seems to us spoiled, maybe a little overzealous to tell about the dreams, immature, a bit full of himself, is going to be transformed through suffering. Now, God can and does transform his children through any means and way that he wants. But he always works in a way that is motivated by love and through the means of grace. But one of the things that we learn as we enter his kingdom is that suffering is a primary avenue for growth. Now, that may sound bad on its own. We don't like to hear it. We would prefer the more comfortable life. We would prefer everything be convenient. We don't like to hear about suffering. But we don't come at other experiences with those same expectations, particularly think of secular attempts or things that we do in life. If we wanted to be a professional musician or a professional athlete, you have to put in time. You have to make sacrifice. You have to give up things that you want. You may even experience physical pain to get to the end result. If you want to be able to retire, You not only have to work hard, but you have to be disciplined in your saving and in your spending. You have to say no to things now so that you can say yes to them later on. So we don't need to come to our spiritual growth naively and think that we can be prepared to serve Christ and His church without experiencing the purifying furnace of suffering. And yet, unlike fiscal, athletic, or musical disciplines, spiritual training is not about us improving ourselves to simply get what we want. Suffering in the life of the believer is designed to draw us closer to faith in our Savior, or closer in faith to our Savior 
and our God. And in the process, we are transformed as we grow in wisdom that is fleshed out in love. That's what spiritual growth looks like. Growing in wisdom that is fleshed out in love. Now, we all know people who know a lot spiritually. They can maybe tell you a lot about the Bible or tell you a lot about spiritual things. But the goal of our spiritual growth isn't just to have a lot of head knowledge, but rather to have this wisdom that is fleshed out in love. Another word for that is is grace, that we would be gracious. Another way of describing that is the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's the picture that we get, is not someone who is hard-headed or full of themselves, but someone who is so transformed by the grace of God that they ooze grace out. And so Joseph had to be transformed from this state that we see him in in the early part of the story to be equipped to serve. And the way that he's going to be transformed is through suffering. Now we think of the being sold as a slave and serving in Potiphar's house, but there's certainly more that he experienced than just that. Uh, Again, the details aren't all there, but it doesn't take much of our imagination to know that this was... There are several traumatic experiences in this story. You think of the fact that his life was truly threatened. I mean, he heard his brothers talking about wanting to kill him. This wasn't, I mean, when he was far off, he didn't hear them. But when he got close and they start stripping him of his robe and they throw him in a pit, he knows this is not just some prank. And so this idea of imminent death certainly was traumatic to him. On top of him, this was at the hands of his family, his brothers, those who are closest, those who are the ones who are supposed to have your back, not stab you in the back. These are the ones who were connected to him as family. These were the ones who were now not only hating him, but mauling him and threatening his very life. And then even after Reuben steps in, the older brother Reuben steps in, for some reason he leaves and we see him come back and then they have this little change of plans. But, but even, even after he steps in, the idea of being sold as, as, as a slave to these strangers had to be rattling to Joseph. We look back in other secular writings from this time and we find that the, the, the standard price, so to speak, for a slave was 20 shekels. That's what Joseph was worth to his brothers. Standard price of a slave, 20 shekels. That's what he was sold for. And so Joseph then is sold to this traveling band of traders that are headed to this foreign land, strangers as they were, where he will end up serving one of Pharaoh's leaders there. And the brothers concoct the story. Uh, they deceive their father, causing him to believe that Jacob or Joseph had been attacked by this wild animal. And we see Jacob's grief being so unbearable. He pledges he will not recover. He, won't, he will mourn until he goes down to Sheol, in other words, to death, that no one is going to be able to comfort him. So already in the story of Joseph, we see one, uh, this narrative that is really compelling. In fact, this is the longest narrative. This is just the beginning. This is the longest narrative in all of Genesis. It's one of the longer narratives in all of Scripture. It's a, a narrative, a story that's been retold in movies and on Broadway. But the significance of this story is not found in its value as literature. What is the overarching theme? What is the big point? What's significant? The writer John Currid suggests this. He says, because God's name is not mentioned in the chapter at all, he goes on to say, the writer's purpose is to encourage the reader to ask the question, why is God's name not found here? It's a didactic or a teaching technique that is, in reality, highlights the sovereignty of God. 
We know that God is behind the picture, that He is working all things out for the good of His people. Although God is not mentioned, His providence is the central theme of this story. God is at work. And so the beauty of this story is not that it is compelling, but that God proves His plans of redemption are faithful and true. God had promised to Jacob that he would become a community of nations. You remember that back in Genesis 35? The word for that term in Hebrew for community of nations would later be translated in the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament, as the word ekklesia, which is what we translate into the word for church or congregation. And so what God had promised to Jacob was that from Jacob would come a beautiful people, united in worshiping God. But as we look at these opening words of the story of Joseph, that doesn't seem very likely. I mean, here is a family that is so bent on hatred that they are willing to even take steps, even though they didn't, to kill their brother. And it's not much better that they sold him into slavery, that they threw him in the pit. How was anything close to a harmonious people going to come from such dysfunction and disorder? Well, the answer to that question is the same answer that we have to the questions in our own lives when everything goes awry. How will God make sense of this pain that I've been? How will God bring anything good from the loss that I've incurred? How can God heal, let alone work for my benefit, anything from this wrong that someone else has done to me? What is His purpose in my feeling so alone or hopeless or filled with shame, or powerless, or insufficient. What's the point? The point is found in who God is. We look in a passage like Isaiah 59, 20, a promise given to Israel that says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That word for Redeemer is one that we see throughout, used throughout the Old Testament. But it appears in a psalm that is particularly precious to many of us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems, there's the word, who redeems your life from the pit. Where was Joseph? In a pit, in a cistern. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like eagles. I don't know if the writer of the psalms had... Joseph in mind here uh, when he wrote this, but our God, the picture that's painted here is that our God is a redeeming God who is sovereignly at work to bring about something that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God has worked, we have seen, not only in Genesis, but throughout biblical history, even through our own lives overcoming the greatest evils of man by sending His Son as our Redeemer. Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. He died to pay for our sins and satisfy the just wrath of our holy God that we might be made right with Him. We, we only see the underside of the weaving, the, the ugly side that doesn't make sense if you've ever seen the back side of a weaving, but God is at work at the upper side, the side of the weaving that's beautiful, and remarkable. And 2 Corinthians tells us, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his work, The Message. It's a, it's, a, it's a paraphrase of this passage with some modern language. I think it's helpful at this time. Let me read it, the same passage. Peterson writes, These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see will last forever. Small potatoes, not insignificant. Suffering is real. Suffering is hard. Suffering hurts. Pain is real. We scratch our heads. We don't understand. But we come back to this hope that is beyond the pain, beyond the anger, beyond the fear, beyond the questions, beyond the doubts. And we find true rest, true joy, and true hope in our redeeming God who kept his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and will certainly keep his promises to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider Joseph's life, it's a story we're so familiar with, Lord, that sometimes we can get lost and miss the forest for the trees. We know what's coming, and so maybe we miss the significance of what's actually happening here. Lord, would you help us to see that as you worked through this dysfunction, this mess, this this recipe that was was anything but, I mean, it, was, it wasn't anything close to success. It was a recipe for disaster. And yet you, you took it and you wove it together to fulfill your promises to Abraham. You set the stage for the, the exodus, this image of your ultimate redemption, not just of your people Israel, but of your beloved, the church, that one day you would send the Redeemer, to conquer our ultimate enslavement, our sin and death. And that through the work of Jesus, we would be delivered not temporarily, but permanently and eternally from not only the effects of sin, but the reign of sin and the power of sin. Lord, may we rejoice today as we look in Joseph's life and see your hand at work May we rejoice knowing that you are also at work in our lives, in our messes, in the fractures, in the catastrophes, in the junk that's in our lives that we're dealing with right now, that you are at work, that you hold all things together, that you work all things together for good, and that indeed you take that, even that which is intended for evil, and you work that too for good. May we hope in the fact that you are our Redeemer and our friend and that you will complete what you have begun, and you will do it well. So give us courage and give us joy. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we pray in his great name. Amen.